welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. I am your host, Shadi Nabhan. I'm a hematologist and a medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. Thank you for joining this show, and I appreciate you supporting the Healthcare Unfiltered, which comes to you every week, week in and week out. Uh, look, today we are going to talk about pharmacy benefit managers, PBMs. They get a lot of bad uh, rep out there. And uh, I've, I've invited Dr. Stacy Dusudzina to simplify to you what PBMs are. Are they good? Are they bad? Are they evil? Are they angels? Who are they? Who are PBMs? They're actually companies, by the way, that manage the prescription drug benefits on behalf of the healthcare insurers or Medicare Part D or large employers and all of that. The idea is that the these negotiators should hopefully bring the cost of healthcare down, but what we are gonna learn probably they have not done that. The question is, are they good or bad? Are they our friends or foes? So this is what the topic is about today on Healthcare Unfiltered. You are going to learn a lot, and I'm very curious to know from you what you think about PBMs, but also what you think about this podcast, this episode. So do let me know by subscribing to the show, rating it, writing a brief review, and referring your friends and colleagues to the show. You also can visit my website, www.chadinabhan.com. Check out all of the YouTube episodes uh, on this uh, uh, podcast. It's on my uh, YouTube um, channel, uh, Shadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Today's guest is Dr. Stacy Dusudzina. She's a professor of health policy. She's the Ingram Professor of Cancer Research at Vanderbilt University Medical Center. She has been on that show before and she is coming back. I'm so delighted to welcome Stacy on Healthcare Unfiltered. She's back on Healthcare Unfiltered, which means it's my lucky day and listeners' lucky day. It also means so far I have not messed up as a host, so that's really good. Uh, but since the last time Dr. Dusudzina was on the show, she has become a professor of health policy. So congratulations! Thank uh, you. Are taping this in in February 2023. For the few listeners out there who don't know you, which are very few, by the way, just for the record but maybe a little bit about you and 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 what you do, because you really have a, an interesting background, I would say, in terms of how you uh, juggled between industry and then you went back to academia. Yeah, that's right. So um, hi to the listeners, or hi again, if you've tuned in before. <laughs> um, uh, I am a health policy professor. I came out of um, industry, I worked in contract research organization for a few years before going to grad school and had the pleasure of working on many, many clinical trials and getting to see that up close and personal and, you know, some of these high risk, high reward endeavors that are clinical trials in the pharmaceutical industry. Um, and that made me really passionate about thinking about how people use medicine and access to medicine and um, took me down a path of getting a PhD in pharmaceutical science. And then subsequently, I've been working in the areas of healthcare policy and specifically prescription drug policy 
mostly kind of trying to balance the research around access to drugs, the fair prices for drugs, and how much patients pay, and how do we make sure that patients and society can afford to pay for prescriptions. So I'd say that maybe is in a nutshell, kind of the way I approach my work um, and what informs my work. But but truly, you understand that drug pricing, Medicare, Medicaid, and all of these things, um, like no one else. I mean, one of the episodes that me and you taped was about the Inflation Reduction Act, which was very educational. I mean, I it's, it's really uh, a very good one. So we appreciate that. And uh, as I've told you before, you have job security. The healthcare system will continue to be screwed <laughs> up. So don't worry. We will always need you. We're not going to fix it. You know, it's like taking the car to the mechanic. They fix something maybe, but they keep the, eh, so you can come back. But um, that's right. That that's right. I think the uh, the good and the bad is that there's always going to be something to do. I I think probably I shared with you on our last conversation of, around the Inflation Reduction Act that uh, they fixed or they are in the process of fixing so many things that I've been focused on in my career as like demonstrating how it's broken and how we should fix it to make it better for people. And so I I did have a brief moment of like oh. Am I done? Like, should I just stop? Uh, if there, I've, I actually feel like I, I helped to solve this big problem that I was really focused on, and, and then you know, within about forty-five minutes, I was like, oh no, there, there are lots of problems. Well, you know, I've told you this before that my, I predict you're going to be in office at some point. I really do, genuinely do, and I would love to see you doing something there. Um, whether this is, you know, FDA, whether this is. Um, you know, Medicare, I don't know, but I think you obviously are very qualified. Uh, I just wish that politics were easier to navigate because there are a lot of smart people who want to do well. And then, you know, they go to Washington and they realize, you know, it's not as easy as you think it is. So as usual, I bring you in for topics that are non-controversial and very easy. And today we're going to talk about PBMs. Yeah, I think you also bring me in when you said, oh, okay, we'll have a conversation about PBMs. I was like, wow, this is a this is a really deeply nerdy audience. Uh, I I embrace it. I love it. I am glad that people are interested in PBMs um, because I think that it's important to have these conversations to think about what role they play in the system and uh, the good and the bad of them. Because I think that it's really easy to paint PBMs as a bad guy in the current system. Um, and so I I always like to kind of think through, all right, well, why are they there? How did they get there? What are they doing? <laughs> like, what are they doing that actually has allowed them to persist and to grow so much? Um, and so I'm glad we have the chance to have this conversation. I also think a lot of people don't know, really. I mean, I think I think we we just have to under, like you said. I mean, I don't know how much how much how long back you want to go back in history to understand how they even evolved. There was a time in America where there were no PBMs. Obviously, there was a time that existed. I don't know the sixties, seventies, or eighties. I don't know, but maybe let's talk about first of all what are PBMs and when did they even 
get incepted i don't know whatever you can give us history wise why who are they who started them did somebody just think about this like what happened okay well so this is probably going to be even beyond my knowledge because i actually don't know as much about the foundational history so i think this would be something interesting to go back and trace trace back but i'll tell you kind of generally what PBMs are and what role they play and, and why I think that they kind of developed and grew in the way that they did. So um, PBM is a pharmacy benefits manager. Uh, so just so everybody knows when we say PBM, what we're talking about. Um, you know, if you th think about it, and when I teach, I explain like the role of this entity is to basically set up and manage pharmacy benefits for different groups largely for employers and companies. So if you were thinking about if your employer wanted to offer you prescription drug benefits, they need to actually partner with a larger entity to get some negotiation, no, negotiation leverage for prices for drugs and to manage the benefit because not everybody is capable of setting up a whole formulary and deciding what is preferred, what is not preferred, how to think about cost sharing, what should you put on higher tiers, making them more expensive versus less expensive, and what does kind of adequate coverage look like, and how to do that in a way that saves the employer money so that their premiums don't go up so substantially. So when I first started grad school, I remember going to a conference, and one of the first people I met was a woman who uh, one of the faculty members knew from his graduate program who worked at Express Scripts, one of the bigger PBMs. And I remember her describing, you know, that they basically help companies with negotiating for drug prices and with formulary management. And I thought, okay, this seems completely reasonable. You know, like that's, that, well, of course you would use some, a group like this. And I think that what we've seen is very much like what we've seen over the years in other types of healthcare is there has been a push towards more and more consolidation. So there may have been many PBMs at one point in time, but the actual, uh, the number of PBMs and their share of the market has gotten very concentrated. So three large PBMs make up about 80% of claims that are processed. So they like really have most people who are insured have their claims processed by these small number of companies. <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna step back just a little bit. So that yeah. so just to clarify. So I'm an employer, I'm a Walmart yeah. company, have thousands of employees, and I wanna offer them health insurance with Cigna or whatever, United Healthcare. Yeah. Why do I need that intermediary? Why don't I, Walmart, talk to United Healthcare about the prescriptions that United is going to cover? So previously, the pharmacy benefits have been kind of farmed out to a different entity altogether. Now, over the last probably decade, but it could have gone back a little bit further, We've seen that health plans have started to buy PBMs. So when we talk about PBMs, over time, they've gone from being more independent and separate companies from health plans 
that health plans would partner with or, you know, maybe have relationships with to now like the health plans actually own the PBM. So they have the same parent company. I think the one that people most often point to is like CVS. You've got the CVS pharmacies, you've got the CVS specialty pharmacy, you've got CVS health. So you've got like this whole entity of both a PBM health plan pharmacies that is all owned by the same parent company. So, you know, I think it is actually a really fair question of, you know, why is this extra company involved here? Um, I think at first it was by necessity that they actually had a specialized business that they offered, you know, these services that could be hired out. But now I think the question is, shouldn't there be more efficiencies available if you have the health plan and the PBM being more of one entity? And instead, I think that's where we end up running into some of the criticisms when you think about PBMs and their role in the system is like, they do get paid for these services that they're provided. It, and that may be adding kind of additional overhead to each prescription in a way that kind of makes drugs more expensive, not just for health plans who may or may not own the PBM, but for the people who are hiring them for their services or paying premiums. So, so let's talk about the services that PBMs do. So then the PBMs is this intermediary entity that is going to um, decide on the coverage of prescription drugs, technically. Mm -hmm. So in that decision-making, do they use evidence? Like, do they go and say, the evidence suggests I should cover this diabetes drug versus the other diabetes drug? And then they go and negotiate with the manufacturer to get a cheaper, like what's the, is there like a flow diagram in your, in your head? Yeah. So often they'll have like a um, PNT committee, like a basically a clinical group that decides what should be on the formulary, what should you be offering? So, and then what they're going to do, if there are multiple drugs that could be used for a condition, for example, is they are going to negotiate and use those negotiations to decide what gets covered and what gets covered in preferred placement on the formulary. This allows them to get enormous discounts and rebates for the drugs that they are negotiating because you can say all right, there are you know three or four drug makers who have a drug that has the same mechanism of action. So we're going to have them kind of bid against each other to get preferred formulary placement. And then in cases where the PBM can exclude a drug altogether in favor of its competitor, they can get really great discounts because it's either you get access to the market or you don't. And because the market is so highly concentrated among these top three PBMs, you would imagine that they could get really huge discounts by saying, you know, like, if you're willing to make a deal with me, you have access to 30% of claims that get processed in the US market. Like that's, that's a ton of potential uh, sales. So companies are going to be very aggressive about trying to get the best, um, discount they can and get on that formulary as a preferred drug. One of the things that you can kind of see, they publish their list of excluded products. 
So if you like look up the top PBM and search, like I, I sometimes will like search Google, Google and say, okay, excluded drugs, Express Scripts 2023. And you can actually see what drugs they prefer and what drugs they exclude from their formularies for different conditions. And it'll give you a good idea of kind of generally the different strategies that companies are taking. Then there's a PNT committee. They review the evidence for these drugs. They decide who they will cover, who they will not cover, and sometimes they exclude. And they have tiers, like tier one, tier two, tier three. Yeah, uh, usually so, yeah. Okay. Right, and the tiers basically are just a way of flagging, like how much is it going to cost the patient when they want to access the drug? So the lower the tier generally the cheaper the drug to the consumer. So if I were a drug company and I wanted to be, uh, and I had a brand name drug, maybe the preferred brand name drug is put on tier three. And then the non-preferred drug is placed on a higher tier, costs the patient more money. So I think that typically that's one way that companies kind of negotiate is, Give I'll give you a better discount, but I have to be on a lower tier than my competitor, or I'll give you a really great discount and you'll exclude my competitor. And I think likely it's the case that these um, clinical groups and PNT committees are probably trying to decide about like where can you actually exclude drugs versus where you need to have all of them available, but just at different prices. And I I'm sure that. The other thing that companies are probably thinking about or PBMs are likely thinking about is what do employers want and need? Because that's often their consumer is like the employer is hiring them to manage the benefit. So you don't want to offer a benefits package that makes everybody upset because the employees can't access any of the drugs that they need. So they have to balance that they want the customer to have a good experience because if the customer is always upset, then the employer may stop using that PBM and their services. In terms of the drugs, though, that the PBMs are <clears throat> providing coverage for, these are all drugs, including cancer drugs, including, <clears throat> but, but they're all oral drugs. They can also, I think, have a role to play in the infused drug market. I don't tend to think about them as much in that right. space, but I would assume, especially in commercial health plans, that there's a little bit more of a role for them. And maybe part of it is thinking about things like prior authorization and step therapy and those sorts of utilization management tools, um, at least in managed care. I think one of the challenges is I spend so much time thinking about Medicare and it really is slight is somewhat different in that space because uh, PBMs really play a key role in the Medicare Part D program, but not in the Part B program. Right. So so but but so who are the top three Express Scripts? Um, it's CVS Caremark, um, Express Scripts and Optum Rx. OptumRx. So these are the top uh, three PBMs. So, so they are negotiating, the, they look at the drugs, they negotiate a price with the manufacturer. So the manufacturer, let's say they charge $500 per the drug. They say, we are going to take it for 400, but we are going to put that uh, as a whatever tier. So it's like a negotiation thing. That's right. Uh, that negotiation, is it based... Um, 
on evidence like you know your evidence is weaker so we are going to put the different tier or is it just simply negotiation skills <laughs> you know my understanding is is that insurance companies do consider cost effectiveness and things like that when they're thinking about what what to cover and what to pay for different things so it would i would imagine that it is weighing in a bit the other thing that also really matters here is what are the rules for the different group that you're dealing with? So if we're thinking about how PBMs work in the Medicare Part D benefit, there are protected classes of drugs where there's no allowance for formulary exclusion. So for cancer drugs, for example, you can't exclude any of those from the Medicare Part D benefit. So in a negotiation, if you are told like there's you can't exclude anything, you have to accept it regardless of the price, you could imagine that the negotiations don't go as well for the PBM or the health plan in those situations because they need to be able to threaten to exclude a drug to get a really deep discount. So I think uh, the other thing like in the Medicare program is there are rules about how many drugs have to be offered to beneficiaries within a class or across a different disease area. So you have to have certain minimum numbers of drugs available to people. So it makes it harder to exclude in that case and meet all the formulary rules that are required. Commercial plans probably have much less of that going on, but also again, have to be thinking about like having an, enough coverage so that it meets the needs of the customers that they're working with. So they're also trying to balance that out. But, uh, you know, I would say even beyond like any cost effectiveness or value considerations, like the, I think what they're, one thing is they're looking at how much competition is there. Can they exclude? Can they reduce the number of drugs that they pick so they can get better deals? But often what happens is, you know, with an expensive drug, there might not be competition. So like in the cancer space, we run into this a lot where you really don't have any other options for people. So you need to cover this drug and you don't really have the levers you need to get a lower price. And so what tends to happen is those drugs may be put into a very expensive formulary tier, like a specialty tier that requires people to pay a lot more if they want to access those drugs. The bad thing I think in this case, or one of them, is that at least in the Medicare benefit for a long time, what we've seen is all the cancer drugs were placed in a specialty tier. And it didn't really matter if you were talking about Gleevec or you were talking about something that just had like barely any benefit, it didn't matter. It was all going to be similarly expensive to the patient which is a terrible idea because you're like, oh, you know, we know some of these are basically functioning to like as a cure, but you need to take them regularly. Um, and then there are other drugs where we just feel like we're not even sure it helps people and it may add, you know, side effects and other things that are bad and it's still similarly expensive. So I think that's one of the hard parts about formulary management is some of the tools that I think plans and PBMs would use to get better cost or to think about making benefits more favorable for patients. It sometimes doesn't work out when the drugs are just really expensive. 
I mean, you know, listening to you, Stacey, it's just like, for, again, what you're describing should be net positive for the PBM. Certainly, they're not perfect. And like you, you just described a scenario where obviously there's a huge room for improvement, clearly. But it appears that they it should be net positive. Yet, I think we all see that everybody says they're net negative, they're awful, terrible, all of that including sometimes I've been vocal a little bit about them as well, but I, I, you know, I don't know as much as you do about this. So let's separate perception from reality. I mean, when you look at them, how do you, how do you evaluate their need, their role in the healthcare ecosystem and are they good or bad? It's a loaded question because you (laughs) take as much time as you need to answer it. (laughs) Yeah. So, um, I think this is a really important question. And uh, I think this is one reason why I like to try to level set. That's your next NEJM paper. (laughs) I have a feeling. Well, I I think it's important to remind people of why they exist and what they're doing, because, you know, I, I kind of made a joke in one of the last lectures I gave on this about how, you know, drug manufacturers and health plans just are very public point at one another as being the problems with drug prices and access. And, you know, I kind of made a joke that PBMs just like try to hide, like they try (laughs) to like be, they don't want to be in the picture. They're like, we're not going to say anything, no comment, no comment, no comment. It's like, so they never really stand up and argue about what their role is. They just try to lay low. Um, One of the other things that I think is incredibly frustrating and why there's so much um, like like unknown is because so much of their business practices are confidential and hidden. So we don't know as much as we would like. And I think that really bothers people. I remember hearing somebody say something to the effect of like, when everything's shrouded in secrecy, you you pretty much could bet like they're doing something wrong, like there's something bad. So like you you just kind of think that with all this secrecy, it can't be good. So I think that it also they set themselves up to be criticized pretty uh, regularly because both they don't step up and remind people of what they're doing, and they also are literally by definition middlemen and no one likes a middleman so i think that uh to me it's it always is like well they don't really fight back but they just sort of like we'll just absorb it and money <laughs> so like yeah, yep. um so the the bad side of the pbm space is you know they make a ton of money and it's not completely clear how much additional value they're bringing or if that compensation is fair given their role so i think that that's one thing that people find to be concerning is like we know that sometimes that they're paid based on how much rebating they get so like if you get a huge rebate they maybe get a percent of that or they sometimes get compensated as a percent of the savings to the health plan or things like that And I think people find that worrisome because, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about rebates and why that's worrisome too. But I got to tell you, as you describe this, is there any other source of revenue for them though? I mean, it's either rebates, right, from the manufacturer or how much I'm saving the health plans. And I think, you know, I guess I'll go on the record that I think payers' business model is to deny care. 
I mean, mm. the way payers actually make money is if we provide less care. Now, sometimes providing less care is better. I'm not saying we need to do more care, but yeah. literally that's how they make money. I mean, it's certainly one of the ways that they can sell themselves to an employer or to a health plan is to say, you know, we reduce specialty drug spending by by X dollars, right? Because I think one of the ways that they gain customers or have companies who want to sign up with them is they're able to say, we've kept your premiums from going up more than they would have without us. And we did it by tightly managing the specialty drug benefit. What does that mean? It means we denied access to certain drugs. We made it more expensive for people and discouraged use, or we really got you know, in some cases it could be good where, like you said, we are not overusing drugs that have limited benefit. We're, we're spending the dollars more wisely, but yeah, absolutely. Like that is one of the things that I think they need as part of their sales pitch is that we helped you manage your drug spending in a way that resulted in slower growth in premiums, which is what employers and those offering health plans are looking for. Um, the companies, you know, they they either are getting sometimes a percent of the prescriptions um, or rebates, or they could get a flat fee for the services that they're providing. We also don't have a ton of transparency into the mix of those financial arrangements. So again, like it leads to the suspicion that maybe they're taking up more than they need to. And pharmacists are like livid about the role of PBMs because often one of the other things that comes up is like they're, they kind of are involved in this, the middle of this transaction between the health plan and the pharmacy. And so they're basically paying the pharmacy for the drug that the patient received but the pharmacy might have paid more for that drug than they get paid back by the PBM. And then there are these clawbacks that sometimes can happen later where it's like, oh no, pharmacy, now you owe us a bunch of additional dollars back without enough kind of input about like why they're needing to take back more money. So um, I would say that if you talk to kind of the average pharmacist, there is a very negative feeling about the role of PBMs, but partly it's because, you know, it's like they are basically trying to save as much money as possible. And the pharmacy is going to be the one potentially that gets harmed by that because their whole financial transaction is a completely separate part of the supply chain. It's like the pharmacies independently buying drugs at a certain price and they're getting paid by this other entity who's negotiating prices on the other side. And so sometimes that doesn't match up or it could set up, set you up, especially for small independent pharmacies where maybe they've overpaid for the drug relative to what the PBMs are going to pay them back. So there's, you know, there's that, a lot that, to criticize. But, that, but that's an interesting piece, though, because you just, you know, we just talked about how, for example, CVS which mm -hmm. is a pharmacy, now owns CVS Caremark, which is a PBM. Yeah. So so it's almost two business units within the same company, but they're really butt-heading? Like, what are they, what's going on there? Like, I'm, I'm thinking if you're the top dog at CVS, you're okay 
these are two, you want both of them to be okay. <laughs> well, yeah, and it's who gets harmed by this payment. So you could imagine CVS Pharmacy is able to negotiate really good deals because they're purchasing so much drug from a wholesaler. But your small independent pharmacy, who's like a one one pharmacy in a town, doesn't have that negotiating clout. Maybe they're working with a group purchasing organization, so they've got some kind of additional negotiation that they can do through group purchasing. But I think one of the things that has been heavily criticized is like, you know, CVS Health, they have to be careful about this, but they could potentially like pay their pharmacies better than they pay the independent pharmacies when drugs are filled there. And so it kind of squeezes out these independent pharmacies, which is something that we don't want to be doing. But we are literally seeing this happen in every aspect of healthcare. So you look at like independent oncologists and, you know, any group that's independent has had this kind of push towards moving into a more consolidated, larger entity who can do these negotiations with these other consolidated industries. So health insurance, PBMs, health, you know, healthcare systems, all of them are kind of moving into these larger organizations. So then they have more negotiating clout to get better payments or to get, you know, better reimbursement at the pharmacy. But that is, I think, to me is one of the more important criticisms of this model is that it can be really harmful for that smaller independent pharmacy practice. And we know that those places can be really great for patients who have long, you know, seen the same pharmacist, they like to go to the local place in their town. Um, and so I think that that is a that is a key concern. So, you know, good or bad, or uh, well, I think I'll it's... tell you, I'll tell you, yeah. though, I think some of the reasons, um, I guess one of the most a critical reason why PBMs are um, criticized, heavily criticized, is because the concept was good. Like conceptually, if you're acting on my behalf, I'm the patient covered by Walmart, and you're going acting on my behalf, you're getting the right drug based on evidence, you're saving my employer money, so my premiums are down, my copays mm -hmm. are down, all that, and conceptually, it's great. But I think patients or members don't see these savings. And I think that is really the most important criticism is, you know, they exist. They told us they want to do something to help us reduce our out-of-pocket cost and potentially the healthcare expenditure, which is, you know, this is something you're you're the expert at. But, but patients have not, uh, you know, reaped the benefits of what has been sold to them. Yeah, I so I think that that segues nicely into kind of what happens with rebates and why patients don't get to feel that they are benefiting directly from these savings generated by the PBM. So, you know, one of the key ways that PBMs work is through negotiating rebates that end up getting paid well after a patient has filled their drug. Sometimes these are based on volumes of sales. So it's like, you know, your negotiation might say, okay, well, yeah, I want to be in the prefer preferred placement on the formulary. That way I expect you to generate more sales for me um, if I'm a drug manufacturer because I am the preferred drug. And then based on how 
how many sales there are. Maybe I give you your, you know, I have a certain levels that you want to hit to get a certain rebate. But all that gets kind of figured out at the back end. So, and unlike most other things we purchase when we talk about rebates, that doesn't go to the person who filled the drug. It goes to the drug companies, uh, or sorry, from the drug companies to the PBMs and to the health plans. There are two concerns. One is like, how much does that money go back to the health plan? So in theory, what you want is the PBM to have negotiated and then give that money to the health plan so it keeps the premiums low for everybody. But there is this big question mark about like how much does the PBM take before sending the rest of the dollars? And we don't have transparency here. I will say that um, there have been some investigations in this in the Medicare Part D program and those dollars all do get sent back to the Part D plans, but still the, the PBM is making a ton of money in all those transactions because they're getting paid fees instead of rebates. So uh, setting- I think patient yeah. people, I don't think people would care if somebody else is making money as long as they also benefit. I think that's really where the issue, I think what the well, sense is that the payers are, stock prices going up, the PBMs are yeah. making money, and we as consumers are not seeing anything. So I think this is where it gets complicated in the, what we're being told in general is that this act to keep your premiums from going up, yes. that doesn't feel like savings to us. But if you look at it, what premiums look like on employer-sponsored benefits, so like for a family now, employer-sponsored benefits for a family are over $21,000 that your employer and you together are contributing each year on average in the U.S. That is like, every time I think about that, it's like, that just blows my mind. That's the amount of money to have what I would consider not great coverage. I mean, most of us have health plans that we think are pretty not great. I mean, I work in a medical center and I have a high deductible health plan and it's like, you know, I don't have great coverage. I even have this crazy uh, benefit that they've put into place, which we've written, we're writing about, we want to kind of give people a heads up about where like, I don't really have specialty drug coverage. I have to go through some kind of crazy hoops to determine like what I have to apply to patient's assistance to get specialty drugs covered on my health plan. So, you know, I think when we think about savings and how the PBM works, and in theory, what's happening is all these negotiations are benefiting customers, but they're doing so by not allowing the premium to grow faster than it already is. The problem is, is we're spending so much money that it feels like our premiums are continually going up or our benefits are getting worse. And so it doesn't really feel like savings to us. It's just, if you has, like figured out, if you banned PBMs, what would happen? Or if you banned their rebates, what would happen? We actually have an estimate of what this would do to spending in the Medicare program because the Trump administration attempted to ban rebates in Medicare Part D. And they estimated that it would just balloon the Medicare spending on drugs, because if we banned rebates, basically it would rely on drug companies to lower their prices voluntarily. They've said they won't do that. 
So it would basically be like reducing any kind of competition we had in the system and would drive up spending, which would then drive up premiums. So I guess the question is, is like, are we better off without them? I think the answer is no. But one of the things that I think policymakers are really focused on right now is this issue you bring up about what patients have to pay and that they don't get those savings. So in, in the way that our benefits have evolved over time, we're basically all being asked to pay more out of pocket. So maybe you pay a deductible or you pay a coinsurance and you're paying that based on that inflated price that is not what your health plan has negotiated, but that like original starting price. So if I had a drug that like uh, I, I usually say, you know, like if I had an anticoagulant, maybe that's $500 list price. And then you get your health plan later gets maybe a 50% discount because there are a lot of competitors in that space. Well, if I'm paying a thousand dollar deductible on my benefits, I have to pay that full $500 price, you know, when I go to the pharmacy and later on, my health plan gets $250 back and they don't give me any of that. So I think that is something that policymakers and patients feel very frustrated by. And I can absolutely understand why it's just like how to fix that in a way that kind of also, um, doesn't I like I like yeah. your contrast of let's think PBMs don't exist. Let's take yeah, them. yeah. I think that's probably the best way to tackle this. You know, take them out. What would happen? Let's let's think through this. Almost yeah. like a thought experiment. What would happen is that the 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 employer, the employer will need to negotiate directly with the payer. So, they would need to negotiate with all of the drug companies. So I think this is the thing that why, ends why up- the drug, Why would the drug companies, I'm the employee, I'm, so for example, I am yeah. Walmart, like going back to Walmart, I'm Walmart. I would go and shop around with the payers directly without the PBMs and say, but I think um, the PBMs are forced on me because the we're assuming they don't exist. Then the payers will have to go and negotiate with all of the- payers. Exactly, the, yeah. The so. Yeah, so the the payers would have to have that expertise in-house and develop that system. But instead, they've long partnered with PBMs where now they own PBMs to do that work. So I think if you wanted to completely remove them from that system, it would have to be like a company working with a drug, like basically Walmart negotiating with drug companies to get discounts or deals and to offer and manage a formulary. So you really do need that expertise. You know, you just think about how many drugs come to the market, you know, generic entry, all these things that are decisions that you want a company to be making strategically about like what's best, what'll save the most money, what's good for patients. So it's like their role is really important. It's just the question I, I think that is useful to answer is like, are they overcompensated for their role in the system? And why aren't we getting any efficiencies for the now the health plan owning that PBM? Why doesn't that streamline things in a way that allows the health plan to offer a better deal? And I think to me, this comes a little bit back to 
some of the challenges we have when we think about what health plans are allowed to do. So they have to use a majority of your premium for actual healthcare related spending, but they don't have a ton of incentives right now to keep spending low. So you'd imagine like, why would a health plan want to keep spending low? It's to offer attractive premiums to people in their area. So if I, you know, if companies are shopping around for a health insurance product, they are going to try to get the best deal and the best coverage. But again, we've gotten so consolidated that, you know, if your employer said, okay, you know, Stacy, instead of working with this big health plan that's cover is, you know, taken by most of the doctors in your area and the best hospital, we're going to go with this other health plan that only has this really small network, but they have a better price. I wouldn't want to work at that company, you know? So like, again, I think we're kind of caught in this area where we've become so highly concentrated in all of these different entities that it makes it hard to, I think we have to kind of press pause and redo the whole system at once. Um, it's a little bit like our fragmented health insurance system when you look at it and you're like, how do we fix this? And it's like, start over? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I guess. But let me let me ask you one, one other question in terms of uh, the concern is one of the concerns that I hear a lot is that the decision of what to cover and what not to cover is not as pure as we assume. It is not based on clinical data, level of evidence, information. It is really based on economics. Yeah. If me and you are two different companies competing for a PBM uh, formulary, they will just go with uh, the one that will get them the best rebate, uh, regardless of the clinical uh, efficacy or the information. And I think that the problem is this is it's almost going down the rabbit hole because I, as a manufacturer, I already know who I'm competing against. And if I feel my data is not as good as I want it to be, I'm going to go and offer a better rebate because I'll take more market share. So yeah. I think that that's where that's where there's a, a lot of concern. I mean, as as all of us are as patients, um, you're right about the transparency. But to me, that is my major concern. Like in addition mm -hmm. to economics, I want to make sure that you're making these decisions not just based on the dollar signs only. You should. It's okay. I'm I'm a capitalist. I'll admit. I'm totally fine with that. I mean, we really need. You know, we we need that. It's totally fine. But you can't really let that blind you. Yeah, you know, I think if you want to hear about the downside of PBMs, go make friends with some rheumatologists who have to deal with this <laughs> kind of arbitrary nature of like yeah. what is covered and literally just, you know, they might have a pre preferred drug based on their experiences with their patients and seeing what works best on, on average. But you know, like they're like, it's totally dictated by the PBM. I have no input at all. It's like, I have to figure out what's covered. And, you know, I think that the question is, is like, are there guardrails in situations where there's actually like clinically, there's a better drug versus, you know, a suboptimal drug. You know, I think the other thing that I hear come up a lot, and I understand the the frustrations are these issues around like utilization management, the step therapy protocols and the um, prior authorizations 
those are really cumbersome and people spend a lot of time dealing with the administrative hassle of trying to get drugs approved. And, you know, I think that that for better or for worse, it's like that's in place, you know, to try to reduce spending unnecessarily, make sure everybody has tried the lower cost options, for example, but is very valid for people to be frustrated to have to go through that repeatedly with their patients. You know, it'd be one thing if you automatically were trying to go to the highest price drug without trying other things. But I think where you see this a lot is, you know, this person newly started working at this company, isn't on a new health insurance, and now you have all this paperwork just to keep them on their treatments that have been working well for them. And, you know, that's a, I think these are things that need to be fixed. Um, but often when you look back at them, it's like, okay, why does that exist? And again, it's, you know, because there are kind of these push to use newer drugs, and which you know, are the other, the more other, expensive. The other one, Stacey, is I think you brought in rheumatology is biosimilars. Yeah. Right. I mean, you've got, for example, many of these biologics, and then you have the biosimilars that came out. Technically, they're supposed to bring the cost down. You know, it's debatable if they've done that or not. But but essentially, if I'm a PBM, I'm going to actually, if and, and the manufacturer of the biologic, the original drug is giving more rebate, I'm going to say, yeah, we'll use that versus the biosimilar, which could have been cheaper. But but my my marginal cost became much less because I got a better rebate. Yeah, and I I think this is where um, one of the things that is so complicated about the biosimilars is that it the competition isn't working the way that it does for small molecules. You know, it's like that's kind of how we think things should work, but we don't really expect like for small molecule drugs. We expect when there's competition the brand is not trying to compete on price. Like they do not lower their prices. But in the biosimilar market, the brand does lower its price. So you end up, it, they do it through rebates, but like you you end up in this situation where it's like, it's really hard to tell which drug is actually the lowest price drug when you factor in those discounts and rebates because they're operating in a different zone. And I think for like PBMs, the the thing that we should be looking to is, are they getting the lowest price, period? Because like, that's what you want them to be doing, regardless of how they get there. But in cases where they're doing that through very large rebates, are you protecting the patient from having to pay more because of the drug you selected? And again, that's where PBMs get a really bad reputation is you know, and health plans too, you know, they're one in the same in when we think about this, but if they set it up so that patients are paying based on the list price, which happens quite a lot now, then we should be critical of them using these rebates as the way of negotiating, because it basically then overcharges the patients for their drugs relative to what their contribution is supposed to be. So if I have a health plan that says I have to pay 25% of my drug's price, if I'm paying 25% of an incredibly inflated price, that's totally unfair because I'm only supposed to pay 25%. And effectively what you're asking me to pay is 50% or more. And that that's not really 
a reasonable thing to do to the patient. So my general view is like, I don't have a problem with PBMs if and rebates if we can protect the patient from having to have their price tied to that list price. I think patients should pay copays, period. Well, you can do that uh, once you get into office. I mean, <laughs> maybe, you know. Slowly but surely. I They'll be like, she is the most boring person ever when I'm like, no, copays co yeah, right. for everyone. You have, you have my vote. I'll vote for you. Uh, and I'm, you, I, I live in Chicago. I get more than one vote. I don't know if you know that. In Chicago, we do a few more <laughs> Stacy, this, really, uh, this is really very helpful. I, I think we covered it a lot. I, it's, you know, I think my, uh, I'll let you go. You're very busy, but it, it looks like overall, uh, they're not as bad maybe as people think, but there's a lot of opportunity or room for improvement. Absolutely. I think under our current system, maybe we could call them a necessary evil. Um, I will say also for your listeners, um, something that is coming soon is that the FTC is doing an, a full investigation of the major PBMs, where they are asking for a ton of information to try to provide more transparency into the role that they play in the healthcare system. And this has been largely information that is unavailable to the public and to policymakers. And so I'd say just keep an eye on that. If you're interested in how PBMs work, they are doing a very deep dive and collecting a ton of information from these PBMs about how their business practices are working so that we can actually get a little more transparency here and think about like, what are the downsides to their current business practices and how can we make it better for consumers? So. Well, I know that is like the most boring stay tuned no, I've ever this is, done. <laughs> this is great. This is like, you know, FTC investigation. That could be a future documentary. There well, you go. <laughs> Dr. Dissetzina, thank you so much for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. It's probably the most we can excite people about PBMs. I think this video <laughs> is going to go viral. You just wait, wait and watch. There we go. Well, great to see you again, Chatty. Take care. Thanks everyone for listening and thank you for coming on uh, today's podcast and listening to the show. I appreciate your support and I appreciate you being always an avid uh, listener. Don't forget to let me know what you think of the show by direct messaging me on Twitter at Shadi Nabhan or by sending me an email to shadinabhan00 at outlook.com. You can also visit my website at www.shadinabhan.com and let me know how I am doing. If you are a listener that loves the show, I can send you the Healthcare Unfiltered Podcast t-shirt. It is a great t-shirt for your workout, for your walk, and for styling on social media. Also, if you like reading books, do not forget to check out my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. It is the story of the first three trials that were taken in front of a jury in the litigation against Monsanto and their herbicide product Roundup that has been linked to non-Hodgkin lymphoma. I was an expert witness on behalf of the patients, and these three trials were the trials that won by the patients. Uh, uh, they, they were the first three trials against Roundup. 
So thank you so much for listening. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying from a poet, a Lebanese poet, Khalil Gibran. Out of suffering have emerged the strongest souls. The most massive characters are seared with scars. Until next time.